We're going to be reading this morning out of Isaiah chapter 29. There are 24 verses in Isaiah 29. We are going to read through Isaiah 29, all 24 verses. Then I'm going to give you some information to help you when you go home this afternoon to meditate on Isaiah 29. Like you really are. Anyway, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. And then we're going to talk a little bit about some of the elements here. So Isaiah chapter 29, verses 1 through 24. Woe to you, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David settled. Add year to year and let your cycle of festivals go on. Yet I will besiege Ariel. She will mourn and lament. She will be to me like an altar hearth. I will encamp against you all around. I will encircle you with towers and set up my siege works against you. Brought low, you will speak from the ground. Your speech will mumble out of the dust. Your voice will come ghost-like from the earth. Out of the dust, your speech will whisper. But your many enemies will become like fine dust. The ruthless hordes like blown chaff. Suddenly, in an instant, the Lord Almighty will come with thunder and earthquake and a great noise with windstorm and tempest and flames of a devouring fire. And then the hordes of all the nations that fight against Ariel, that attack her and her fortress and besiege her, will be as it is in a dream, with a vision in the night. As when a hungry man dreams that he is eating, but awakens and his hunger remains. As when a thirsty man drinks, drinks me, dreams that he is drinking, but he awakes faint and with his thirst unquenched. So it will be with the hordes of all the nations that fight against Mount Zion. Be stunned and amazed. Blind yourselves and be sightless. Be drunk, but not from wine. Stagger, but not from beer. The Lord has brought over you a deep sleep. He has sealed your eyes, the prophets. He has covered your heads, the seers. For you, this whole vision is nothing but words sealed in a scroll. And if you give the scroll to someone who can read and say to him, read this please, he will answer, I can't, it's sealed. Or if you give the scroll to someone who cannot read and say, read this please, he will answer, I don't know how to read. The Lord says, these people come near to me with their mouth and they honor me with their lips and their hearts are far from me and their worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. Therefore, once more, I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. The wisdom of the wise will perish. The intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. Woe to those who go to the great depths to hide their plans from the Lord, who do their work in darkness and think, well, who sees us? Who will know? You turn things upside down as if the potter were thought to be like the clay. Shall what is formed say to him who forms it, Well, he didn't make me. Can the pot say to the potter, He knows nothing. In a very short time, will not Lebanon be turned into a fertile field, and the fertile field seem like a forest? In that day the deaf will hear the words of the scroll, and out of the gloom and darkness and eyes of the blind will see. And once more the humble will rejoice in the Lord, the needy will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. The ruthless will vanish, the mockers will disappear, and all who have an eye for evil will be cut down. Those who with a word make a man out to be guilty, who ensnare the defender in court and with false testimony deprive the innocent of justice. Therefore, this is what the Lord, who redeemed Abraham, says to the house of Jacob. No longer will Jacob be ashamed. No longer will their faces grow pale. 
When they see among them their children the work of my hands, they will keep my name holy. They will acknowledge the holiness of the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. Those who are wayward in spirit will gain understanding and those who complain will accept instruction. Now, to do the technical breakdown of this, we need to remember and understand that this is a prophecy that's written by Isaiah, speaking on behalf of God to the nation of Israel, but specifically to the people of Judah, and specifically to the leadership in the nation, in the, in the city of Jerusalem, the capital of Judah. What has been happening in the world is that the northern kingdom, Samaria, is about to be crushed. The Assyrians are in power. The Assyrians are the ones that are coming and doing all the crushing. And Isaiah is talking about something that's just about to happen, where Assyria is literally going to come and surround. They're going to take over all of Samaria. They're going to take over all of Judea and come right up, literally, to the base of the hill where Jerusalem is, is fixed. And they're going to have this huge 180,000-member army encamp outside of Jerusalem, and then God, in an instant, in one night, is going to wipe out that army. And I, I don't remember exactly how many exactly it was, but it said finally that King Sennacherib pulls out and goes home, and then ultimately King Sennacherib is killed in his own home, and Jerusalem is left standing. Now, eventually, if we look at world history, eventually Babylon rises up, and Babylon then takes over, and then ends up taking over Jerusalem. But what Isaiah is talking about here in chapter 29 is there's this impending doom from Assyria. And the, the people of Jerusalem are listening to their leaders. And Isaiah is prophesying, listen leaders, you guys are messing up royally. And you need to recognize what God is about to do. So... That's the gist of what's going on. Now, let's take a, a little bit of, of a, a, just some, some snippets here and look at what's going on. Verse 1, verse 2, and verse 7. They talk about the little mermaid. Ariel. What is Ariel? Have you ever heard this before? No. Yes, but no. No. Yes, but no. You're right. Both of those are right, but there's still one more. There's three different meanings. Okay, look at the bottom of chapter 29, verse 2. The, the, the last part of that verse. What does it say in your Bible? She will be like me to an altar hearth. An altar hearth or an altar hearth? Okay. That word that is translated out of the Hebrew into English, altered hearth, is the word Ariel. So it is, as Jesse said, Lion of God. It is Jerusalem. It is altered hearth. All three are correct interpretations of the word Ariel. So scholars are like, uh, uh, there's no question in their heart that, the, that when he says, Woe to you, Ariel, the city where David settled, there's no question that it's Jerusalem. But the word Ariel in Hebrew means Lion of God, and it means altar hearth. And what is an altar hearth? Does anybody know? Huh? 
It's, it is a specific spot on the, on the sacrificial altar, though. Think about in your own home. If you had a fireplace in your own home, what is the hearth? Exactly. It's the spot in the fireplace where the fire burns. And we also allow even that part outside of the fire box that's at the bottom of the fireplace as the hearth. Okay? Now, the hearth, and specifically when it says altar hearth, it's talking about if you were to look at a picture of some artist's rendition of the, te- of the uh, uh, altar in the temple in Jerusalem, that would be the spot where that flame is to never go out. The, fl- the fire is always be tended, and the fire is, a rep- is, is what, re- what consumes the offering that is being given morning and night. And so there's this, this idea, this, this understanding with the word Ariel, that this is the very presence of God. This is the place where the very presence of God is found, in not only in the nation of Israel, but period, in the world. This is the spot where the, the fire of God is. And so when it says, woe to you, place where God dwells, And then it says, and year to year, let your cycle of festivals go on. Think about what that would be to a Hebrew person, to a Jewish person. What what are the cycle of festivals? Passover? Pentecost? Sukkoth? The Day of Atonement. They have a calendar, a yearly calendar of religious festivals that take place. And there are three specific festivals where every adult male who is, who is Jewish has to go to Jerusalem to attend. It is, a, it is part of the rule book of the Mosaic Law. They have to attend all of these festivals. If you go back and look through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all of those rules are in there. And these leaders are telling these people, you've got to follow this, you've got to follow this to have the blessing of God on us. We've got to do these things. And what God says to these people who are practicing God's, the the rules of God, doing the things that God has commanded of them to worship God appropriately God says in verse 13 through his prophet, These people come near to me with their mouth, and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship, their worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. Now, you heard me say to the kids, the Our Father, the model prayer, and you heard me go quickly through it, and you heard the point that I made, that it was just simply speaking the words and not really praying. Don't raise your hands, but how many of us are guilty of rushing through our devotions just so that we can click that off on our to-do list and getting on with the rest of our day? I'm not saying you do it regularly, but have you ever done it? Or someone sends you an email, or a text message, or a Facebook message, and says, would you please pray for blah, 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 blah. And you quickly say, oh God, bless them. Be with them, God. And then you move on. Because 
That was the obligation. You fulfilled, you, you prayed for them, and then you move on. Or, even better yet, just type a response under their request. Praying. Really? Okay. I got a prayer request yesterday. The Church of Nazarene here in Two Rivers receives prayer requests regularly. Sometimes they are real. Sometimes they are the guy from India who wants to make sure that the one million dollars comes to me if I give them five hundred thousand dollars so that they can send a check to me. But it's still in the form of a prayer request. And every single time I get it, I pray, Lord, in sincerity, I pray, Lord, whoever this is, be with them. Whatever their true need is, bless them. And I take the time to pray specifically over it. Some of them, based on the leadership of the Holy Spirit, I forward out to our prayer team. But most of them, I just pray for. Because a lot of them are just people who like to send out. This one guy yesterday literally said in his email, I have sent this out to tens of thousands of churches, and I'm just appalled at the response I get. I'm like, really? You're telling me this? This is called spam, sir. But anyway, my point is this, though. Prayer should never be glib. Worship should never be glib. But the reality is, we're human beings, and there's times when you just don't feel good. There are times when you're distracted. There's times when you are heavy in your heart with something, and you can't let go of it, and to focus on God is actually a chore. I'm just being real. I don't know if that's anything that you've ever experienced, but for me, I've experienced it. There's times when I don't want to pick up the Bible and read it. There's times when I don't want to go to church. There's times when I'm like, you know, God, can I just stay home by, please? Well, let's be real about it. Let's think about it for real. I mean, if, if you're sitting there negotiating with God at 8.30 or 9 o'clock on Sunday morning, why don't you stay home? Why can't you stay home? See, that, that's the concern of the question. I'm not saying you shouldn't come to church, but you should ask God if it's okay if you stay home, if you really want to stay home. Because, quite honestly... If you're so focused on the fact that you've got all of this stuff going on at home that you just don't really have the time to go to church this morning, what good is it for you to go to church this morning? If all you're going to do in the church is sit here and think about all the things you should be doing right now. Instead of truly focusing on the one that you're here to worship. And truly praying to him. And truly setting aside all of that other stuff for an hour. Now, don't hear me chastising. I'm telling you, I've been there. Even this morning, it was five was stinking clock in the morning when my alarm went off. It was 5.47 when I finally got out of bed. I could not get myself up this morning. Then I got over to the church and I wanted to spend, I had in my heart, I wanted to spend time with God, just intimate, quiet, focused time with God. And there were people here already. Bob doesn't pray in front of people when he's being real and pouring his heart out before God. But what I'm saying is when it's my quiet time, when it's me pouring out my heart before the Lord, it's hard for me 
if other people are around. It's easier for me to go someplace into a closet. So it was one of those, I can't go into the sanctuary. Okay, I'll just go to my office. Oh, there's stuff I have to do here. <laughs> i got to finish getting the children's sermon thing done. Oh, I forgot to get a rose. Ellen, would you please pick up a rose? I mean, I'm trying to spend time with God and all of this stuff just hitting me and hitting me. And finally I just went, okay, God, you know my heart. <laughs> I'm just going to spend the time that I can. And then when I, and I finally finished everything, set it all to the side that I had to absolutely get done. And then I just sat there, and it was about 15 minutes before the worship team practice, and I just sat there. And I didn't read the Bible, and I didn't pray any prayers. I just sat there in his presence, and I said, Lord, this is the best I got to offer you right now. And it was intimate, and it was real, and it was beautiful. And see, that to me is what God asks of us. If, if I were to take us into the New Testament, I could show you different areas where Jesus specifically talked about this passage in Isaiah, chapter 29. If you were to turn to Matthew, excuse me, to Mark, um, chapter 7. There it is, Mark, chapter 7. And you were to read the first 23 verses of Mark, chapter 7, which we don't have time this morning to do. But he talks about, in, in chapter 7, verse 6, he said, Jesus is saying, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. And he says to his folks, after the doors are closed and everybody's gone, what comes out of a person is what makes them unclean. For what, from, for, from within, out, excuse me, for from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, etc. All these evils come from the inside and make the man unclean. And Because see, the problem was his disciples were focused on, well, you're saying that I'm honoring you with my lips, but I'm, I'm supposed to worship you with my heart, but my heart is unclean, and what am I supposed to do? And Jesus was saying, I see your heart, I see your heart. If your heart is sincere and real and genuine and true before me, then I'm not calling you unclean anymore. If you go to Matthew chapter 15, there's an interesting point that comes up in the same discussion with, um, with the, uh, the same quote. Jesus is talking to his disciples, pretty much the same, same episode, but Matthew's response, or Matthew's recording of this, he puts in here, Then the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? And Jesus replied, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them alone. They are blind guides. If a blind man leads a blind man, both will fall into a pit. And I, I thought about that one. And I was like, Lord... As the pastor of this church, to me, that's kind of a scary statement for me to read. Because it says when the disciples came and they said that the leaders of the church were offended. And he said, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them. They are blind guides. If a blind man leads a blind man, both will fall into a pit. 
it was the, the thought hit me like, God, is there a danger that I could actually fall that way? That I could get to the point where I'm not paying any attention to you and I'm not really focusing on you and all I'm doing is just leading people the best of my ability and ultimately if they're not focusing on you either they're focusing on me that we could all walk together into a pit see those are hard words to think of and so for me there's a caution for me as the pastor that I have to keep my eyes focused on Jesus at all times that I have to keep my heart clear before God at all times that I have to make sure that I know his word backwards forwards inside and out not following the traditions of my church, not following what I was taught by anybody else, but what is the Holy Spirit teaching me and leading me and guiding me? Now, yes, I need to check that against, you know, what tradition is. I mean, the Wesleyan quadrilateral, tradition, reason, experience, and, um, can't think of the last one, and scripture. So I have to, you know, compare all of that, but, but the point is, is that if I'm not focusing on God, and you guys are looking at me and not at God, we could all be walking blindly down a path that's leading to death and destruction instead of the life and hope. And so to me, that's, a, that's an incredibly strong warning to me, but it also should be to you. Because at any point, you guys should be able to come to me and say, Pastor, I don't see that in Scripture. Help me to see why you're taking us down this road. You should have, and you do have, the right to come to me. And say, I disagree with what you're saying. Show me in scripture how you can support what you're doing right now. And say, as I read it, this is what I see. Because you should never just take blindly what I say. There's a, in the book of Acts, Paul actually uh, brings, uh, uh, compliments a group of people called the Bereans. Because his, he said, when I taught at the Bereans, they literally went home every night and searched the scriptures to make sure that what I was saying was accurate and right. Now, I'm not saying this to chastise you, and I'm not saying this to make you feel bad, but how many of you actually take what I've said and then go back and check the scriptures later to make sure that what I'm saying is right? Because if you don't, how do you know I'm not leading you astray? Now, I'm not trying to be a downer in this. I, my, truly, my whole heart in this was to focus only on Jesus, but I prayed and asked him what I needed to say, and this is what he asked me to, to share with you. We are, as Christians, we are required, Jesus said it to the woman at the well, we are required to worship God in spirit and in truth. We are not to follow the leading, the, 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 the history, what is the word, traditions of humanity. We are not to follow it just because this is the way church has always been done, this is how you do church. We are supposed to keep our eyes focused on God and God alone. We are, we are to read his word and to follow his word. But if at any point I start getting off on tangents because I'm misinterpreting this word, you have a responsibility as Christian to come to me and say, Hey, brother, you're messing up. Just as much as I have every right to come to you and say, Hey, as I see the scriptures and I said, as I see you're living your life, you're messing up. The problem is, as the leader of the church, it's a bigger responsibility on my part. And I'm going to be held accountable. The other thing that scared me, and again, I'm not trying to be a downer, but the other thing that scared me was I was looking at similar passages of Scripture. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, it says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. 
Many will say to me on that day, but Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? And I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. And again, listen to what they're saying. Lord, didn't in your name, didn't we do this in your name? And he says, I never knew you. Away from me. The Pharisees thought they were right. Jesus is talking about a day when others who thought they were right will find out at the last possible second how wrong they were when they're being cast out of the presence of God for eternity. And that's scary to me. And then you go back into Isaiah chapter 29, verse, is it 12? I think it is. Just before 13. No, it was 10. The Lord has brought over you a deep sleep. He has sealed your eyes, you prophets. He has covered your heads, you seers. And what I see there, and what I was reading in in the commentaries, was this. These people had gotten so far off, they weren't willing to listen anymore, so God just said, okay, done. You're not going to hear me anymore. It's called apostasy. I can show you in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, where that's exactly talked about for Christians today. That it is possible to, as a Christian, it is possible for you to go against God so often that finally you just can't hear His voice anymore. When I was describing this in a Sunday school class once, I said basically the way I look at this idea of apostasy is that Jesus is walking with me down a path. And he's guiding me down this path. And I get to a certain point and I go, oh, look at that beautiful flower over there. And Jesus says, you don't want to go over there. But it's so beautiful, God, I want to just go smell it. It's a beautiful flower. Trust me, you don't want to go over there. But Jesus, I want to go smell it. I'll be right back. Come on with me. We can smell it together. I'm not going over there. But Jesus, if, if you want to go over there, feel free, but I'm not. I'll, be, I'll wait right here for you. Okay, Jesus, I'll be right back. What did I just do? I stepped away from him to do what I wanted to do. If I continue this way and don't return back, there's going to come a time where I can no longer hear him. And he'll be too far away. He could be going, Bob, Bob. I can't hear him anymore. Not because he ever left me, but because I chose, out of my rebellious attitude, to do something he told me not to do, which got me distracted farther and farther and farther. Oh, another pretty flower. Oh, look at this over here. So the point could come, in Jesus' own words in Matthew chapter 7, that I could be standing there going, but Lord, didn't I in your name pastor a church in the far north of Alaska? In your name, didn't I? And he would say to me, depart. We are not in relationship. And that's a scary thought to me. I never, ever, 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 ever want to get there. So how do I avoid it? I don't go smell that flower. 
I make sure that I'm stuck like glue right here with Jesus at all times. Listening to his guidance. Getting his permission whenever anything attracts me. Because there may not be anything wrong with smelling that flower. But it could be that just beyond that flower is a pit. That if I were to fall into it, I would never fall out, never get out of it again. And Jesus knows that the ground around the edge of that pit is loose. And even though that flower can get a root into that loose soil, it won't support me and I will come down crashing into a pit that I could never get out of. And so Jesus said, don't go there. Don't go there. Listen to me. But you see, if I get to the point where all my worship is just, and all my praying is just going through the motions, and not intent, sincere, intimate times with fellowship with God, then it gets harder to hear the voice. And the likelihood is there that I could walk away. See, it's never... In my mind, apostasy is not a, I don't ever want to be with you again, and I'm leaving now. I never see that. But I do see a cooling down of the heart. It's on fire for God. It's on fire for God. It's on fire for God. But then I get a little bit farther away from the center of the flame, that aerial, that altar hearth, the burning presence of Jesus. And the farther away I get because of bad choices, because of selfishness, because of intentionality, I begin to cool down. So my goal, as Bob the Christian, not Bob the pastor, but Bob the Christian, is to stay in the middle of that flame, to stay right there with Jesus, to keep my heart focused right on Him, and to not allow anything to dissuade me from that purpose. That's true worship in my mind. Whether it's done at church on Sunday morning or whether it's done in my home because I have a lot going on and I just can't make it to church this morning, but I'm gonna, I am going to spend time with God. Whether I'm physically present with my brothers and sisters on Sunday morning or not, I am going to spend time with God. Now, I do not want to see this church empty next week. Well, pastor, we're just taking you at your word. What I am doing is I'm giving you permission to be genuine and real with God and with us. Okay? Because it is more important to me that you are right with God than that you are here smiling really pretty and fulfilling the obligation. Because that's not true worship, folks. That's not real. And I believe with all of my heart, God doesn't, doesn't even like it. He would literally... Unfortunately, this rose did not have the smell that I was hoping it would have, but he would literally smell us as if it was that fake plastic and cloth rose and go, it looks nice, but not much there that brings any pleasure to me. Anyway, I don't want to belabor this point, but this is what God whispered to me as I was reading this. I want to stay, I want to get right into that hearth. I want to be where it's burning hot so that there's no question that he and I are like this for always and forever. There's an old joke that says, I want to be so close to Jesus he has to tell me to scoot over. Let me read one last thing and then we're going to pray. This was from John Oswald. 
He's, he's speaking about this chapter. This is from his commentary, but it just spoke volumes to me. It said, Jerusalem is no more immune from destruction than Samaria. The fact that they're not officially worshipping idols hardly enters the equation. They too are trying to manipulate God with cultic activity. Not worshipping as an expression of covenant love. And when I read that, I wasn't sure, quite honestly, what he meant by cultic activity and trying to manipulate God. And I had to stop and think about it. And if I had read just a little bit farther in the chapter, I would have had all my questions answered. But I stopped to think about it. But when you go farther in the chapter, and I didn't write it all down, he said, imagine this is how you talk to God. You know, I've gone to church every stinking Sunday, regardless of what the weather is. You would think that I would be able to get that raise at work. God, I have prayed, I don't know how many hours. I don't know how many countless sleepless nights I have been praying for my child. Why aren't you bringing them back to me? And you see, Oswald is saying that that's cultic and manipulative. Because see, the worship of God is only because he's deserving of it, not because you're trying to get something from him. To have a relationship with God is because he desires relationship with you and you desire relationship with him, not for the blessings you might get from him. Now, does God want to bless us? Yes. Will God bless us? Yes. But he's not going to bless you based on how long you pray or how hard you pray or how many pages of the Bible you read or how many Sundays you get up early so you can get to church on time. None of that matters. What matters is the right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That's what matters. Having a heart that's clean and pure and real when you worship. And it doesn't matter where you do it. It just matters that you do it. Let's pray.